Good morning, church family. Thank you so much, worship team. You've led us into God's presence, and that's where God has us today, in fact, to talk about his glory, his holiness, his power. He is going to prove some things today at the Red Sea. I've been looking forward to this message for a long time since we began uh, the study in Exodus. This is kind of the peak of excitement today. Let's just review where we've been, where God has us today. Exodus, again, the second book of the Bible, records this massively significant portion of God's overarching story of the universe, these experiences that happen in Exodus. And we're still living out this story, the same story, the story of the universe, God's story today. Every experience that we have, every relationship we have, every decision we make is still a part of the same story, how God, our creator, is moving the entire world to freedom. So I hope that you're very much engaged and connected because this is your story, how your true and total freedom comes from this movement, now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the center of the story. So welcome to Community Grace, where every week we proclaim the center of the story, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, our model Our answer to all of life's problems, mysteries, and needs, that is Jesus, the Lord who loves us and who's been on the move ever since he created the world. So worshiping him and studying him and fellowshipping in him and following him are the biggest purposes you can have in your life. So this is a good place to be this morning, amen? All right, so we're going to open our our Bibles today, and uh, if you haven't already, open to Exodus 13. If you don't have a uh, bulletin with the sermon notes in it and you'd like one, raise your hand and Chris will give it to you. There you go. Thank you, Chris. And we will be ready. Well, yes, we're picking up where we left off uh, several weeks ago. Exodus 13, 17 is the verse we're going to launch from today. And just a, a quick review. We've seen in Exodus, we've seen slavery. All kinds of slavery still affects us today. Physical slavery political slavery, social, economic, mental slavery, and especially spiritual slavery. We've seen God's methods of bringing people out of slavery, individuals, nations. He raises deliverers like Moses and us, everyone whom he has saved. We've made this declaration over and over that we are his deliverers as we proclaim the gospel to the people in our lives. And we saw in Exodus how we can discover our unique calling. We all have a special role. And that's pretty exciting. We've seen how Jesus overcomes discouragement along the way. We've seen all this in Exodus. We see especially that he and he alone is the one true God and worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship, all of our commitment. Only him. Only him. And we're going to see that again today. We saw that in the ten plagues on great display as we... Uh, looked at those closely, and today we see that same thing in the epic story of the crossing of the Red Sea. And our focus today, as we hold on for this ride, here's our focus, truths that God proves at the Red Sea. We're going to see several truths that God proclaims and proves that we can claim today and align our lives with for our good and for God's glory Yes, we get to align our lives' incredible journey with the incredible journey of the people 
of God from Egypt, out of slavery, into freedom. All right, so this is where we pick up chapter 13, verse 17. God gives us several truths about himself that he, about himself that he proves at the Red Sea and tells us how we should live in light of them. So Lord, do your great work through us. Number one, the first pr- truth that God proves today is that God is faithful. God is faithful. We might not always think so or feel so, but he proves it over and over and over again. He is faithful. In the opening six verses, we see this, and we learn over and over and over again that our response is only to do two things. Number one is to trust in his wisdom. Watch how he guides. If you remember, or just imagine, uh, the people of, of Israel are, just got permission from Pharaoh. Okay, go. So off they go into the wilderness. Now what? Let's look at verses 17 and 18. Here's what happens. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. That was the shortcut into the promised land. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led them instead, the people around by the way of the wilderness, the long way, toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt. Here they go. Now it says they were equipped for battle. As I pondered that a little bit, he's going to lead them away from war, though they were equipped for battle. What that tells us is that they, in their minds, think that they're ready for battle, but God knows in his wisdom they are not. So he says, no, don't go the short way. I'm taking you the long way because I know God has graciously told them not to go the short way. Even though they're equipped for battle, God knew that they weren't ready yet for war. God knows what's best and where he leads. We need to follow and trust his wisdom. Okay, so the first truth that God proves here is that he is faithful and we should trust his wisdom. How does this apply in your life? Well, a lot of the times we think we know what's right and don't even ask him before we make big decisions in life, right? So ask him and trust where he leads us because he sees the whole picture and we learn this through life. By the way, we need to pray for Israel. They've been getting bombed all week. If you've seen the news at all, they're at war with Hamas right now. And we might ask, you know, why, why is that? Well, let's apply this. We need to trust God. And we need to pray that Israel, which is far from Christ, totally rejects Christ, that they turn to Christ, even in the events that are going on right now. Can we keep Israel and pray and trust God in his plan that he's working there right now? We trust in his wisdom. The next thing we do is to live in his presence. Circle the word presence after you write it down, if you're taking notes. This is a lifestyle. This is our way of life, to live in his presence. Are you doing this all the time, to live in his presence? Let's let's talk about that. Let's see what that looked like here in Exodus and then apply it to our lives. Verses 20 through 22. As they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness... And this just gives you exactly where they are here. And the Lord went before them, listen to this, in a pillar of cloud by day, in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. 
And here we have our first mention of these pillars, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Have you ever heard of the pillars of cloud and the pillar of fire? Okay, this is the first mention of them, and they are repeatedly with the Israelites. This is God's presence. Now, why did God appear in these pillars? Let's understand what's going on here. This is a major theme for the rest of the Exodus. It's a major theme for the rest of the Bible. It's a major theme for our lives today. This is God's presence. And he's with them, and he's with us. And God is assuring them with these pillars that he is present, he is with them, he is guiding them, he is protecting them because he loves them, because he cares for them. And this is the best way for people to live in God's presence. Now, and you might be wondering, isn't God omnipresent? Which means he's everywhere at the same time. So aren't we always in God's presence? I'm glad you asked. It's a great question. And you know that English words, or just any language words, have different meanings, right? So God is omnipresent, and he is everywhere all the time, so we are always in God's presence, but we're not living in his presence. Let's see the difference. This kind of presence is our choice to dwell in our attentiveness to him, our communing with him, hearing his communication to us. See the difference? God is everywhere. Now, we live in that presence. They did not see God directly because the Bible declares from Genesis to Revelation that that would kill a person immediately. If we saw God face to face, it would kill us in this human condition. But they saw a form of his glory. Now, in that picture that I chose to put the pillar of cloud and fire, you may have noticed that was hovering over the tabernacle. That's coming in a few chapters when they build the tabernacle, which is where his presence dwelled. And that's an exciting study. I look forward to, to diving into that. So here we see the beginning of it. He is assuring them. He's with them. He's caring for them. And ultimately, God's presence was fully realized in the man who was God, who became one of us and dwelt among us. That's Jesus, who tabernacled among us. He dwelled among us. And then he left his Holy Spirit. And today we dwell with God through his Holy Spirit. It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome provision. And in the fellowship of his family, the church. So here we are. I, I pray that in your heart you're opening it to dwell in the presence of God right now. The truth that God pro proves here is that he is present faithfully and that we should live in that presence. Listen, God doesn't leave us. We wander from him. Got that? He never leaves us. We wander from him. So choose not to wander anymore. He's always there. Stay with him. He stays with you. We learn this. And then we move on to the second truth that God proves, and that is that God is passionate about his glory. We're going to get to know the real God. God is passionate about his glory. Let's pick up in chapter 14. The action continues. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 4 first. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Okay, he's given them some directions there. Now listen to his plan, verse 3. 
For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And here's the reason. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. God said the same kind of the same words throughout the ten plagues. They keep rejecting him. He keeps proclaiming, I am the Lord. The ten plagues revealed that Pharaoh was a hard-hearted God-hater, even though God proved his glory and power over and over. Pharaoh hardened his heart, hated God. Now he finally was broken by the ten plagues and let his two to three million Israelite slaves go. But here, when the Israelites left Egypt, Pharaoh's true heart comes back out. He changes his mind, doesn't he? He's like, wait a minute. My labor force is gone. His power and control and prestige among other kings, gone. And power-hungry people don't like that. So he says, I still hate God. I am going to get them back. So we see what God does. He's beginning a plan. God's going to lure Pharaoh and his army into thinking they're lost and wandering in the wilderness. Perfect prey, easy prey. I'm going to go get them and get them back. He says, why? In verse 4, which we just looked at, I will get glory over Pharaoh because of this, and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. He wants all the, the, the nations to know I am the Lord. Bingo, God is passionate about his glory. Now, an age-old question is quickly answered. An age-old question as you're wrestling with Christianity and what the Bible says is, isn't it a little prideful for God to be so concerned about him getting glory all the time? Well, that's a human way of thinking it, and the answer quickly answered is no. God created everything, and all of creation is for him. He is the only one that deserves glory, and it's good for us to give it to him. It's good for us to know who he is and to give him that glory. It's mind-blowing the fact that he shares when we humble ourselves and give him the glory that he is due, that's called worship, he shares that glory with us in his joy and lifting us up. It's the only thing that lifts us up from all the rest of the muck of life. Oh, he's good and he's worthy of all his glory. He's due all of it. The truth God proves here is that he is the only one who deserves glory and it's best for us that we give it to him. You better not want that glory for yourself. And we better not give that glory to anyone or anything else. It's only God's. He shares it with us. God is so passionate about his glory, and he will get it, the easy way or the hard way. Egypt's choosing the hard way. Which made it hard for Israel, too. They're caught in the problem of Egypt's rebellion against God. Let's look at the rest of these verses. Why it gets so hard for God's people. Verses 5 through 9. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots. These were iron chariots, archaeologist shows us. And all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and his army. Just imagine the scene and look what happens. And overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. Here they are, caught between attackers and a sea. That's a rock and a hard place. They're stuck. They've got them trapped. And it's terrifying. Can you imagine? The iron chariots in this army with swords ready to come get you. Just feel that. But then we have truth number three. God saves sinners. And from verse 10 of chapter 14 through the rest of the chapter, we find one of the most important parts of Scripture. One of the most important parts of the Bible's big story. The crossing of the Red Sea. God gets his people out of Egypt once and for all and judges Egypt's rebellion through this miracle. And we find some of the greatest truths about God's salvation. Here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to look for the rest of our time. We're, gonna, we're going to look at three truths in the opening verses between 10 and 31 at the, at the first few verses. And then we're going to enjoy the entire epic story. And then we're going to respond as Moses did in a song of praise, and great praise. God is going to speak to us through these words. I pray that you're ready to hear. Three truths regarding God-saving sinners. First, we are saved from slavery. The passage begins with the Israelites trapped. And naturally, they are fearing and complaining, needing to learn this truth that God saves us from slavery. Let's look at the verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, it's getting close, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would be, have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I tell you, this is the human heart. Even if it was misery and painful, at least it was familiar. This is the fear of the unknown. And they're responding like any of us do when situations are like this. And they're fickle. And we're going to keep seeing that as the chapters go on, that they're fickle. They change their emotions and minds, and they worship, and then they reject, and they fear, and they're bold. They go back and forth. But guess what? We are too we are too. Realize they are just leaving Egypt. They have not had time to mature in their faith at all. Have we? We've had more time to mature in our faith than they have. And yet, do we ever complain? Yes, we do. Of course we do. That's convicting, isn't it? 
God's people naturally feared this, this army and their weapons of mass destruction. That's natural, but what's the problem? What's the real problem? The problem is that they had their eyes fixed on the problem. Not on the God who brought them this far. And so they complain. And this is going to be an ongoing challenge that we'll talk about more than once over the coming weeks. But I think we'll relate every time we see them complaining and fearing. Go back to the first point. Trust God. Trust God. He's in control. Okay. I like a lot of people say it this way. They have gotten out of Egypt, but Egypt hasn't gotten out of them yet. And I, I want you to identify with this. Egypt has not gotten out of their hearts. They are still slaves here on the inside. See, God rescues and saves sinners, and at the moment of your salvation, when you trust Christ, I mean, you have no idea until you really research the word all, I mean, how utterly and totally, 100%, you are free. You are free from all sin, condemnation, shame, and guilt. It takes us a while to learn and grow into the, the freedom we've already been given. See, the problem is that our slavery has layers to it. Positionally, when we trust in Jesus, he frees us based on the works that he did, and we are free. But the layers of our slavery are in our hearts. This is, we talked about this on Easter. If you were here on Easter, our, one of our, our Easter texts was Romans chapter 8, and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation in, in Christ Jesus. However, here's, here's our reality. We still live in this flesh, in this body, this life, and we still have all of the memories, habits, idols, strongholds that we used to turn to. Now, God has set us free from those things, but we still have all those memories and idols. And listen, I'm going to make sense for a lot of things that are in your life right now with this. Our flesh is still filled with these memories and habits and idols and strongholds and the fears that used to enslave us before we turned to Christ. And so we still struggle by returning to our Egypt, our old nature, our old habits, our old fears. You see, brothers and sisters, we are not slaves, but we are prone to act like slaves. Trust God. Receive Jesus. Live by the Holy Spirit. But this is why we have anger. And this is why we have unforgiveness. And this is why we struggle with addictions and behaviors that keep hurting ourselves and hurting other people. And why we have that pride that we just can't humble ourselves beyond. And we have fears that cripple us. This is why. But God has released us from these things. So what can we do? What should we do? What has God given us to combat this return to Egypt in our flesh? Here's what he's given us. He's given us his presence, which we just talked about. He's given us, he is the fa his fatherhood. He's given us 
the Son, Jesus, he's given us the power of the Holy Spirit. So, and then he's given us the word which gives us all the answers. And here's some things that the Bible says. Jesus says, abide in me. If you don't abide in me, um, then you can do nothing, he says. Abide in me. So be with God. Uh, Galatians says, keep in step with the Spirit. Not, not ahead of God, not falling behind God. Keep in step with the Spirit. Colossians says, we put off the old us and put on the new us. And that's a constant action. Those are constant verbs. We put off the old us. This is, our, this is what we do. We put on the new us. Romans 12 says we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. The renewing, the washing in the word. The renewing of our minds. And it says then in, in verse 2 of Romans 12 that we're transformed to be living sacrifices. Not dead animal sacrifices, but we're living sacrifices. That means every moment we live and make choices that are sacrifices. And that's our act of worship to God continually. So the Bible gives a lot of things. I, just, I love this, and I've said this before. This just comes to mind again. The Bible never says, don't do something without telling us what to do instead. God is so good. He's so good. So we are slave from slavery, saved from slavery, once and for all, but we still return to it, just like the Israelites. I pray that God will release all of us from all of these layers of slavery. Amen? Can we join in that prayer for each other, for ourselves? Release us, Holy Spirit, from our return to slavery. In the next two verses, Moses gives us more strength and more direction. We are saved by crossing over to grace. I love how this story unfolds. Verse 13 and 14, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Look at verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. There's an army approaching Moses. What kind of strategy is this? Stand still? It's an awesome strategy. This is God's fullness of his grace. I think God saves Israel, and I believe this, and records it in Scripture so that we can learn this lesson. Grace, not works. For it is by grace that you are saved, not by works, lest any man should boast. God does the fighting and the work for us to earn our salvation. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Grace could not be any clearer. God's salvation is, is by God's grace and works, not by ours, not by our earning his favor. What God has done for us through Jesus Christ. You only have to believe and receive. This is the gospel. That's what they're experiencing right here. The gospel is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament just looks forward to the fulfillment of Jesus of it, and we look back at it. This is what they're experiencing. This is what God is teaching them and leading them through in this amazing, miraculous event. And verses 15 and 16 offer one last clarifying truth about God saving sinners, and that is that we are saved through a mediator. Saved through a mediator. Okay, so how were the people able to cross over? How were they not just scattered? At this point, think about it. You got all these people. Surely there were naysayers and fear mongers in the group and people freaking out. I'm sure the army's coming. How were they not just scattered in total chaos? How? Because they had a mediator. They were mediated by Moses. They were led by Moses. He was the mediator. See, see what happens here. Verses 15 and 16. The Lord said to Moses, okay, so here we have the Lord said, said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. 
Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Just, just see Moses here. Here is Moses on one hand, he identifies with God. On the other hand, he identifies with the Israelites, so much so that he got rebuked for their sin by God. So he's standing in the middle. He takes their sin before God. God communicates to the Israelites through Moses, and then he does the miracle through Moses. Moses is the mediator between God and the people. The great miracle of the Red Sea happens through Moses raising his staff and hand and dividing the waters. That is a mediator. That's a man in the middle. And that was a foreshadow of another mediator, a better one, Jesus Christ. Jesus was not just rebuked for one set of sins from one people in one time. Jesus, our mediator, took all of human sin and all of the wrath of God on himself. He's the ultimate mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says this, For there is one God, there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. God has proven at the Red Sea and today, what we've seen today, these truths, that he is faithful, that he is present, that he is passionate about his glory, which he shares with no one except that he shares the joy of it with us. He saves sinners when we cross over to grace through believing and receiving Jesus, our mediator, who takes what is far and brings us together. Oh, what a great Savior Jesus Christ is. And now we become children of God. And if children, heirs. Well, you've noticed on your, on your notes, if you have them, that the next steps are above point four. This is not a mistake. <laughs> the next, next steps, uh, I'm going to break up a little bit today. We're going to have a little fun today. So the first next step, I'm just going to put this right here, right now. Fully trust in God. Have you given your life to God? Your life to Jesus. If you believe, you may receive him and have total freedom through your faith and trust in Christ. You've got to believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that he is the Lord and your Lord. He takes these things that are far, humans and God, couldn't be any farther without Jesus. So trust in him today. He is our provision, our salvation, our Lord. Fully trust in God. And if you need to talk to somebody, please do. Just take that communication card and check the box. There's one right there for you. And uh, you'd like to discuss further personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I can't wait to have that meeting with you. Now, we are not finished. Now let's have some fun looking at the crossing of the Red Sea. I'm going to read the rest of chapter 14 and then talk about some of the fun details of the Red Sea crossing today. We're going to be uh, kind of minor scholars here by the end of the day today. Okay, are you ready? 
Let's get ready for the ride. I'm going to read verses 16 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 31. So um, just follow along with me. Here's the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. God said to Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Hold on to that. They walk on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory, he says again, over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then, check this out, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and went behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. What we have here is God setting a divine smokescreen to camouflage this army and his people. Wow. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Smokescreen. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. There's that dry ground again. The waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left hand. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, they were all in there. And in the morning, watch, we'll come back to that too, the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and in the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. They're like, oh, where are we? Clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Their eyes are open to this, but it's too late. Then the Lord said to Moses, Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. So we have the time stamps there. Morning watch, when the morning appeared, this is when it all happened during the day, and we'll come back to that. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Yet the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel, saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, which is a good kind of fear, the right kind of fear. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Does God work great miracles? Yes, he does. Do some people deny miracles? Yes, they do, of course. Should this shake our faith because some people deny them? No, it should not. We've got all the reason in the world to believe God on and on the reasons are evident. And we're going to look at some facts right now. I'm just scratching the surface on the reason that our faith should not be shaken, our faith in God. Here we go. Typical pictures of the Red Sea crossing look something like these. Here's the first one. You see a very narrow line of people. The next one. 
you see the walls of the water just really close to each other. And then Charlton Heston, got to throw him in there, right? All right. That's what all the pictures of the Red Sea crossing shows, something like that. And I kind of grew up wondering if you could see the fish in the walls of water. That'd be kind of neat. Okay. Let's look at the mathematics of the Red Sea crossing, though. Let's see the reality. In Exodus chapters 12 and 38, the number of Israelite men are given. These are the count, the census of fighting men, 600,000 men, 600,000 men plus women and children. That's where we get our two to three million number of the people that we're talking about here. Now, a lot of people will argue, scholars and whatnot, uh, God-hating scholars will say, well, that's just, it's impossible that three million people could be sustained in the desert. Well, hello, the rest of the book of Exodus tells exactly how God sustained them in Exodus, doesn't it? Okay, but anyway, they're saying, well, maybe it's 6,000 men. So we're talking like 20,000 people. You know, that's a lot more reasonable to think. But any objection to the word of God is just riddled with holes. Here are some of the holes to a smaller number. First of all, there must be enough Israelites to make Pharaoh and the Egyptian army scared. All through the book of Exodus, their numbers are growing. They're multiplying like crazy. They're going to take over our whole. We've got to do something about this. They made them slaves. They're scared of the Israelites' numbers. They're called as numerous as the stars. Also, simple mathematics, normal population growth. Normal population of a clan of 70, which they started after 400 years, is right at this number, between 2 and 3 million people. That population number still exists today. That's exactly what the numbers of normal population would bear out. And they were multiplying like crazy, striking concern into Pharaoh. The smaller numbers would be unreasonable or abnormal. Now, there's no reason at all to doubt the Bible's accuracy on everything that it says. That's the character of God as well. Now, the time involved, more math. Verse 24 said, in the morning watch. Remember that? That is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And by the morning hitting, it was all done. So that's a three-hour window. God tells us exactly how long it took to get across the Red Sea. So you got two to three million people crossing the Red Sea in three hours. Let's do some math. Marching 10 across, like those pictures showed, with about five feet of personal space, would make a line 100 miles long, which would take days to get across. That's not what it says, right? Marching 1,000 across would make a line that's two miles long and would take about three hours for everyone to get across. 1,000 people across plus their livestock would make a width of the walls of water at over one mile apart, walking on dry ground. Simple math. This is, this is what we should paint our pictures at. That'd be a very big painting. One mile across. All of this speaks to the location of the Red Sea crossing too, which is a whole other topic of conversation that has stimulated the minds of researchers for thousands of years because we don't know exactly at what point they cross. It's a fascinating thing to watch some things, shows about or read some books about. 
But we do know that it could not have been across one of those marshy little ponds just to the north of the Red Sea, like a lot of faithless scholars would argue. There are lots of holes with that theory as well. There are holes with every theory that argues against God's miraculous working that's plainly evidenced in Scripture. There's no need to explain away the miracles of God. The truths God proves are always on the side of our faith. This math is also why the Egyptian army didn't hesitate to to pursue them. I think maybe they would have if they saw walls of water right next to each other, but they were a long ways apart from each other, and and it was dry ground. So they pursued right in there, and then God, man, when when Moses waved his hand and staff again, and those those waters came crashing in, what? It just trapped them in the sea. Finally, finally ending Pharaoh's pursuit once and for all. The hard way. Like I said, God will get his glory. The easy way or the hard way, but he will get it. Pharaoh's evil and his hatred towards God and oppression of God's people are now over. That's what God does for us with our slavery. Trust him. And that leads us to next step number two. Praise him continually. And that takes us to point four and Exodus 15, 1 through 21. Moses' song of praise and worship in response. Can you imagine being there? What a leader Moses is right now to sing a praise in response to what they just experienced. And we're going to respond to God with that same thing today. God is worthy, point number four, of all praise. I'm going to call the worship team to come on up now. They know this is coming, so hopefully you guys are ready. (laughs) And we're going to respond like the Israelites did. And this is how we should always respond to God delivering us from small things and big things to just praise him and thank him. Give him the glory that he's due and see how that's best for us the victory that he shares in our lives. So we're going to do this. And I'm going to ask God to work powerfully in our church and in your lives today and mine. Moses' song in these verses is considered a prototype of Christian worship. In fact, I'll just mention this. He doesn't know I'm going to do this. But Tristan's writing a song, has been writing a song for some time on these verses. And I just think that's pretty cool. But we learned that what Moses does here is a prototype to Christian worship. We'll notice at the end that Miriam has a role too. We talked about Miriam as a teenager last week. Remember that? Well, she's all grown up now. And uh, she's a worship leader as well. And I'm thankful for the worship leaders that we have here that help lead us into this victorious part of our lives to praise God. So thank you, team. Let's do this together. What we're going to do, we don't know the original tune. 4,000 years ago. So um, would everybody stand up and we're just going to read these verses together while the worship team plays some music. Everybody stand. The words will be on the screen. And we're going to read an excerpt from this chapter, a long one. And I'll lead, but everybody just read at the same time in a spirit of praise. I hope that you have discovered some things that you've returned to in slavery in your heart and are giving them to God right now and that you've seen him work in your life and you're going to praise him right now. 
Let's do this together. Here we go. The Song of Moses, 15, verse 1. Read with me. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Then down to verse 20, we see Moses' sister Miriam respond. And we're going to end with this. I'm going to read verse 20, and then we'll all read verse 21. Verse 20 says, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And I just want you to visualize this. Let's respond with them reading verse 21 loudly. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing a final song. Lord God, who is Egypt and the horse and the rider that's attacking each and every one of us? Oh, I pray that we'll trust you and we call on you to deliver us from them. And I pray that we'll be empowered as a church to walk with each other graciously and patiently and sacrificially as we do, carrying each other, bearing each other's burdens for your glory. We ask for your Holy Spirit's filling and power to do this very thing. And now we respond to you in song.